The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Matthew 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Reboam, and Reboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shiltil, and Shiltil the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of God. I feel like that might deserve like a standing ovation there, the gold star. (laughs) The gold star winner of the morning, Don Bartolazzi, reading... Hey, you can wake up now. The genealogy's over, right? All those names there. Uh, for most of us, those are uh, skip-over verses. Yeah? Woo! I don't know. A bunch of names. Who really cares? Let's get down to the, the meat and potatoes of the Jesus story. Um, but my hope is that you're going to see today is that there is some um, incredible good news, especially as it relates to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the season of Advent that we find ourselves in. So this is uh, Advent. Advent's a word that means arrival or coming or celebrating the fact that Jesus Christ has come, the Savior, the Lord, the Messiah, the King, Abraham's heir. He is finally here. He has come. He has done what has needed to be done in order for sinners to be saved. Um, My mind just this morning started reading, if you are reading and working through Advent devotionals, my mind was turned to the heart attitude in Luke's gospel of the prophetess, the woman, Anna, where Luke said of her, she was described and those of her friends were described as those waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem, waiting. 
waiting. That's what this season is about. Christmas season is a season of waiting. Where are all my kids at? Little kids, raise your hands in the air. Anybody? Little children? Yeah? Any children at heart sitting out here this morning? Yeah? Okay. What are you all doing right now? How would you sum up from now until December 25th? What are we doing? We are all waiting. At least Pastor Jonathan is waiting. There's some gifts going to be under that tree with my name on it, and I'm looking forward to it. I'm waiting for it. And if you can grasp that concept of waiting, even in that rhythm and the flow of what's going on in our culture right now, this season we find ourselves in, it points us to the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. There were men and women waiting for the redemption, waiting for that salvation to come, and that joy and that anticipation that you, you lean into during this Christmas season. I encourage you to keep doing that. And if you keep doing that, then you will be able to put yourself into the place where we roll into the first book of the New Testament, the Matthew or the Gospel written by Matthew. And Matthew doing what most of us would probably advise him not to do. Please, sir, don't start off your good news story of Jesus with a bunch of listed names of people we don't care and names that we could hardly pronounce. But there's something going on. We see here the dawn of redeeming grace before us in this list of genealogy, family tree of Jesus if you want to summarize the main idea, if you want to take these 17 verses and boil it down into a singular idea, I think we could use this language here this morning, this hope of redeeming grace, this idea of the waiting, the hope that all these things that God has promised is finally going to come, this hope of redeeming grace, it rests secure on the shoulders of the one born in Bethlehem. The Bethlehem baby, the Lord, Savior, Christ, Jesus, He is the one on whom our hopes rest. And as you're going to see with Matthew, this genealogy actually serves to prove that our hope is not unfounded but that our hope rests secure in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pause, I'm going to pray, I'm going to ask that you would join in prayer as well. And I think it would just be appropriate to help, uh, to ask the Holy Spirit to help us give fresh eyes to what is here in front of us. For some of us, we want to skip over these verses. For some of us, we just know these things. The Christmas story has become very familiar to us. And so it's good to pause and to ask, Jesus, would you help us? Would you open our eyes to see you freshly? Holy Spirit, we open our minds to understand the scriptures in front of us so that we might see the hope of redeeming grace that you need, that I need, rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes? Let's go to the Lord in prayer and pray for these things, okay? Lord, in this season, would you give us a fresh glimpse of you, a fresh look to you? Lord, would you move in a way that draws us to see our need for you right now as we turn to your word Lord, in a sense, I'm asking that by the power of the Holy Spirit, would you move us to the edges of our seat? Would you, 
wipe sleepiness and apathy and passivity away? And would you give us a focused concentration on the word of the living God being spoken to us, preached to us, proclaimed to us right now? And would you do this, Holy Spirit, in such a way that we would be captured by the words of Christ, captured by the fulfillment of promises long made, captured by the hope of redeeming grace, grace that redeems our souls in the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you come and do these things? Would you assist me to proclaim these words for the name, for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ? Father, we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, if you are a Star Wars fan, then you are very, very familiar with how the following takes place. You hit play on the movie, and then you begin to see yellow scrolling text that rolls against a background of black, and the opening words begin a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. For those of us who were maybe around during this time, or for those of us who enjoy history, in 1977, audiences everywhere were introduced to these words as the imagination of George Lucas drew vast crowds into a world full of lightsabers, stormtroopers, Jedi. And if you remember the movie title of that, that first episode in the Star Wars saga was titled, Star Wars, A New Hope. Star Wars, A New Hope. Now, much like stories from long ago, these scrolling yellow words, as they roll against that background of black, those scrolling yellow words are meant to signal something to you, signal something to me as the audience who are engaging in the story that we're about to sit down and watch. Those yellow scrolling words are much like the phrase once upon a time when you read in fairy tales or myths or legends and stories of this nature. What we're doing when we hear this once upon a time kind of language, we are being prepared that while this story is a good story, it's going to be a fun story, it's going to be an entertaining story, we are also though being prepared that this story didn't actually take place But there is something that we can see in this beautiful story, something that this story is going to teach us. So in the case of Star Wars, this once upon a time kind of opening, it is preparing us for this good thing that there is hope in new beginnings. A new hope is on the scene in the world of Star Wars that George Lucas has created. But notice that something is extremely different when you go from the realm of fairy tales and myths and legends like Star Wars and you turn to the text in front of you and you lay your eyes on verse 1 in Matthew chapter 1, this opening gospel. Notice that Matthew does not begin the story of Jesus' birth by saying once upon a time. Instead, he says in verse 1, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. In other words, right off the bat, as Matthew turns our attention to the birth story of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is course-correcting our approach to what he has written. Matthew understands that your tendency, my tendency, is to approach the information in front of us, to approach the story of the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, is to treat the life of Jesus like a fairy tale. 
to treat it as a nice story, to treat it as something that's quaint, something that's nostalgic, surely something that teaches good things to, to good people, but ultimately, this is a fake story. This is an irrelevant story. It's a story for those people who need a crutch in life, but for everyone else, these are just relegated, these things about Jesus are just relegated to the realm of once upon a time. But unlike Star Wars, unlike fairy tales, the life of Jesus is a story of hope that is grounded in the reality of history. The hope of redeeming grace for sinners is not make-believe. Jesus is real, and the hope of salvation he brings for sinners is real. And what's the proof of these things? What is the proof that when he begins the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, he's not giving us some once upon a time. He's not giving us some a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away kind of idea. Well, here's the proof, says Matthew. The proof that what I'm telling you is real boils down to a list of names, 48 names spanning 42 generations, covering almost 2,000 years of Bible history. So far from being once upon a time, Matthew right now, his genealogy is actually anchoring us in real time. And the immediate invitation for you, the immediate invitation for me is to come and see the hope of a new beginning that is grounded in the one born in Bethlehem, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's point number one. When you look at verse one, Matthew is giving you, he's giving me an invitation to come and see. This is not some kind of once upon a time fairy tale that this is the hope of a genuine, true, viable, can be experienced in the real world beginning, and it's grounded in the one who was born in Bethlehem. It's grounded in this little child, Jesus, who is the Christ. You see, listen, cynicism rules our days, does it not? The skeptic reigns supreme. In our days, pessimism lives to rob hope. And the world we live in makes it very easy to have our suspicions about everything that we see, experience, read about in the world around us. The world breeds this culture, this way of thinking that becomes very pessimistic and it leads us to ask this question, man, I, I hear what the guy up front is saying. I, I understand the words coming out of his mouth. It's not hard to compute what he's saying, but I highly doubt what he's saying. It's landing on our heart through our ears and we're wrestling with this right now. Yeah, the hope of a new beginning, that all sounds good, that all sounds great, but I just don't believe it is possible. We ask ourselves these questions. Is it really possible to have hope that all things can be made new? Do you remember what Charles is reading from Matthew 11, or from Isaiah 11? That was language of hope. Talking about the coming one in the lineage of David where all the upside-downness that we see in the world today will be made right-side-up in a single person. The glorious hope of a world made right is actually possible through this Bethlehem baby. 
We question within our hearts, can this world be made new? The world that I see in my newsfeed, the world that I experience in my workplace, the world that I just got a taste of when I was around the dinner table with my relatives at Thanksgiving when it all fell apart because my uncle asked that insane question and everything just went to pot. I, I don't know that I can trust this idea that the world can be made new. Is there really hope, maybe on a more personal level, that my life can be made new. You know you very well. And when you look in the mirror, you recognize and see that I've made decisions in my life. There's actions that I've taken, actions I have not taken, that leave me riddled and burdened with guilt, with shame, with anxiety. Everything that I've tried as suggested from the world to be able to cope with these things has yielded no answer. And so I hear again what the pastor is saying, but I highly doubt that my life can be made new. I've got no hope here. But if you were to ask these questions to Matthew, I believe Matthew would say, is it really possible to have hope that all things can be made new? Can this world be made new? Is there really hope that my life can be made new? Matthew would say, my answer with no, with no shadow of a doubt, my answer to these questions is yes. My answer to these questions is yes. And here is where my confident assurance rests. My confident assurance of my yes rests in a genealogy. It rests in a genealogy. Look in your Bible at verse 1. Matthew writes this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Notice that the very first words of Matthew's book are reminiscent of the first book of the Bible. What's the first book of the Bible? It's the book of Genesis. When we read the opening phrase here in Matthew's gospel with this phrase, it says the book of the genealogy, that wording, that phraseology, it literally reads like this, the book of Genesis. That word genealogy is the word for Genesis in the language in which Mark was writing. So just as the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, was a book of beginnings, Matthew's imitation of this phrase is suggesting that he is here announcing a new Genesis. He is announcing the hope that in Jesus a new beginning has begun, a beginning in which all who come to faith in Jesus can share in, and that's why he's inviting you in through this genealogy, through this genesis, through this new beginning that's going to culminate in the singular God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice that the hope of this new beginning is centered none on none other than, who does he say there in verse 1? Jesus, the Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. When I was growing up, my family would eat something called Totino's Pizza Rolls. Does anyone know what I'm talking about here? Yeah, absolutely, man. I thought my, my family did not have a lot of money, and so when my parents brought home that bag of Totino's Pizza Rolls, man, I thought it was like highbrow living, man. I thought we were living on cloud nine. Uh, right, if you remember, little pockets of dough stuffed with cheese, stuffed with meat, came to you frozen. Um, you could cook them in the microwave, you could cook them in the oven, 
But the problem was that no matter how you cooked them, the meat, the cheese would unavoidably burst out of that little pocket of dough, and it's oozing all over the place, almost as if to say, man, there is nothing that is going to hold back the goodness, the meat, cheese goodness that's just piled and smashed into this little pocket of dough that was, that was there in front of you. Well, here is my suggestion to you. What we have in verse 1 is a theological pizza roll. That's what verse 1 is. Verse 1 is a theological pizza roll. Words that may seem small, there's not a lot that's being said in the term of content of words, but every single one of these words is bursting, bursting with the goodness of immeasurable hope. This is a theological pizza roll in front of you. Listen, the hope of redeeming grace rides and dies on a single person, Jesus, who is the Christ. Right there in his name, we see that Jesus is the Savior. The name Jesus is the Greek form of the name Joshua, a name which means the Lord saves. So when you talk about Jesus, you're talking about someone whose name is the Lord saves. So when you see the angel speaking to Joseph, you're going to hear this next week from Brady when he's preaching on these verses. The angel shows up, speaks to Joseph. Joseph learns that his boy was to be given the name Jesus because this child of his will accomplish what his name actually means. We're not calling him the Lord saves because he can't save. We're calling him the Lord saves because he can actually save. The angel says to him, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. So we're going to call him who he is and what he will and can accomplish. Jesus is the Savior. But we also see that Jesus is the Christ. Now for many, Jesus Christ is a cuss word. It's something that you say when you stub your toe. It's something that you say to curse someone else. For some, they see Christ as his last name, like of Jonathan Davis, Jesus Christ. But Christ is not the last name of Jesus either. Christ is a title, and it's a title that tells us that Jesus is the Messiah. Christ, Messiah, Messiah, Christ. The word Christ literally means Messiah, or it means anointed one, one that's been set apart, one that is unique, one in whom we can say there is no one else like this singular person, and the title Christ, the title Messiah, the title anointed one set Jesus, the Lord saves, apart from every other person ever. Throughout the Old Testament, there were promises of a coming anointed one. There were promises that one day God's Christ, this anointed one, would arrive and he would powerfully deliver God's people. And Matthew is saying what you have here in the Bethlehem baby is the Lord saves who is this anointed one. But notice that Jesus, Matthew continues, is also the son of David and Jesus is the son of Abraham. Now, for some of us who grew up in Sunday school, there's measures of, that seems important, but it is also very easy to go, who cares? I mean, I'm glad he's got some like forefathers, one of them David, and he's got some great, 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 great grandfather off in the way distant past whose name is Abraham. But the question is, why is this important? 
One of the best questions you can ever ask in reading your Bible, seeking to observe, understand, and apply your Bible, comes down to this. Why do I need to know this information? Why does Matthew see it as important for you to be able to understand that David and Abraham are in the lineage of Jesus? Why do you need to know this? Well, on one hand, it's important to know because God had promised that a descendant of David would reign over a kingdom that would stretch from one end of the earth to the other. There were promises made to King David, Old Testament David, that a forever king in your lineage is going to come. And when this king shows up, that kind of Isaiah 11 stuff we're reading about, you're going to actually be able to see this one of these days. Now, David had many kings in his lineage. But they all faltered. They all failed. But there's coming one who will get the job done. All that Adam had ruined by his rebellion, the promise of God made through the prophets to God's people is that there was one day going to come a promised rightful king who actually flowed in the lineage of King David's royal line. And when this rightful anointed royal king shows up, he is going to fix and undo all that Adam did in his rebellion in the gardens. So it's important to know, Matthew says, that this Jesus who is the Christ is this son of David that we've been longing for. And on the other hand, he goes even further and says, you know the promises made to David about this royal king to come, but why don't you hop in your time machine, shoot even further back past David. You're going to go all the way back to the very beginning in the realm of Genesis 12. You're going to bump into a guy named Abraham, and you're going to recognize and remember that even earlier, God was making promises to this man. God was making promises to Abraham that this same person, This royal king, we would come to find out, was going to be descended from Abraham as well. And in him, this far-off descendant of Abraham, all the nations of the earth could actually experience the blessing that Adam had forfeited through his sin. So when you stitch it all together, he is saying that the Lord saves, who is the rightful anointed king, is the one who's going to come and undo all that Adam did and actually bring the blessing that all of us lost in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned in rebellion. That's a a theological pizza roll, if you ask me. That's all packed inside there in verse 1. So for Matthew to identify Jesus as the Christ, he's saying, listen, this is the one we've waited for. So what we are invited to do is to pay attention and then to respond to the fact that with Jesus' arrival, with Jesus' advent, his coming, his first coming, the Christmas story, God's promised new beginning has been made possible. This isn't fairy tale. This isn't myth. This isn't legend. This is the stuff of real life that meets you in your real life in the areas that you've sinned, in the areas that you've struggled, in the areas that you've taken action, not taken action, spoken out of turn, made decisions where you're like, I am pretty sure this is going to ruin my life. I'm pretty sure I have made a wrong decision. I'm going to be known as this person forever because of that thing that I did, that thing that I did not do. What Matthew's doing is he's coming along to you and he's coming along to me and saying, praise God, this is not myth, this is not legend, this is not fairy tale. this is not once upon a time, this is real life stuff, and the hope of Christmas comes down to this, the very real Bethlehem baby, the very one who brings and fulfills all the hope 
hopes of a new beginning, you can know and experience and taste and see the redeeming power of new hope in Christ. Why? Because this baby has been born. That's what's going on in verse 1. That's the opening invitation of this genealogy that we find. And perhaps you're sitting here this morning, you're saying, man, I don't know much, but I do know this. That's exactly what I need. I need the hope of a new beginning. Here you are, you're at the end of another year. 2022 is about to be written into the history books. And as you survey the previous 12 months, my hunch is that there's probably at least, at least one area in your life, at least one decision in your life, at least one action in your life where you say, man, I would do anything to be able to go back and start over and not do fill in the blank. Not say fill in the blank. Not decide fill in the blank. If you are here this morning and you can raise your hand to that and say, this describes me, then Matthew wants you to know that you can find the hope of a new beginning in Jesus, who is the Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. So in Jesus Christ, we have the hope of a new beginning. But we also see that in Jesus, the, hope and, the hopes and fears of all the years culminate in a confluence of hope that is centered on Jesus. That's point number two. When you turn to verses 2 through 17, and you begin to look at all these names that are just tacked upon one another. What is going on here? I think Matthew is leading us to see that in Jesus, the hopes and fears through all the years, almost 2,000 years is represented in this genealogy before us. They come together, they funnel down there to the very, the very confluence, that merging point of the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 16, and it is inviting us to come and rest our hope on him. The first time I heard the word confluence, I was an architectural design student in my design class, my junior year design class at SIU Carbondale. And the particular design project focused on the confluence of the Mississippi and Ohio rivers which merged together in southern Illinois. So that's sort of unique to our state, right? The mighty Mississippi comes rolling down the western border. The mighty Ohio River starts off in the east and it starts working itself. And down at the southern Illinois, you can actually go out and stick your feet into the waters where the merging point of these two giant rivers, there's a confluence. They all come together. So all of the whatever... The, the, the debris, the sticks, the commerce, the merging, the barges, the boats, the people swimming in the summertime, all these different things, they start way far off, they start way far off, but eventually they come, they come, they come, they come, they come, and then they smash together in one confluence, a merging point there in the southern tip of Illinois. And what you have here in this genealogy is much like these two mighty rivers where Matthew's genealogy is the confluence of hope that generations had long been expecting. All of these mighty rivers of hope of, man, I'm longing for the day for this king to come. I'm longing for the one who can undo what Adam did. I'm longing for the blessing of Abraham, but nobody's able to bring it. His son wasn't able to bring it. Jacob wasn't able to bring it. The 12 sons weren't able to bring it. The judges couldn't bring it. The kings couldn't bring it. The prophets couldn't bring it. And there would be this waiting, stirring, hopeful expectation of, Lord, please, please bring the one who can get the job done. 
I'm begging you. And what Matthew's doing is saying, I'm going to prove to you that Jesus is this confluence of hope, and I'm going to do it to you by laying on you 48 names, covering 42 generations, covering almost 2,000 years of biblical history. We sang it this morning. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. We sing about the same confluence of hope every Christmas. You see, the word to emphasize in the Christmas carol that we sang earlier is the word all in the phrase all the years. What this genealogy represents are the hopes and fears of real men, the hopes and fears of very real women over a very long period of time. Hopes of promises made by God not yet fulfilled. We've heard what God said. He's given us promises. This isn't like, I hope it doesn't rain. But this is like, I'm banking it. Like, God has promised it's going to happen. I haven't seen it in my day, but I'm longing for it. And I haven't seen it in my generation, but I'm longing for it. It's the hopes of promises made by God not yet fulfilled. But then we also know that when God works in his timing and challenges us, because we think God should have acted in a specific way in a specific time, but yet God in His kindness is moving according to His plan, according to His sovereign design, and that means what we think should happen at any given point of time doesn't take place because God is kindly doing what He's going to do for His name, for His glory, and we begin to see, man, if I was playing God, I would have done this in this way. I would have showed up and acted in that way. I would have said this or fixed this or healed that or course-corrected this. And when God, when we foist our expectations on Him and He does not meet our expectations, what could begin to happen is this. You begin to fear. You begin to doubt. And fears that God's promises not yet fulfilled might never be fulfilled mixed together in this genealogy in what you have are the hopes and fears of all the years. Now for us, Matthew's genealogy hits us like a smack in the face. It is filled with names that we can hardly read and people we hardly care about. We read this and go, I don't know that I care that Nashon was the father of Salmon. Thank you very much. But what we understand is that Nashon was a real man who had a real son whose life was filled with hopes and fears through all the years. But for Matthew's original audience, this idea is exactly what they would have grasped. All the years represented in this seemingly endless list of names carries an immense amount of hope. The clue comes down in verse 17. You guys see that down there in verse 17? There's a clue in verse 17 that tells us that this genealogy carries an immense amount of hope. Verse 17, Matthew tells us how he arrived at the list of names before us. He says this, verse 17, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, 
All it takes is a very quick comparison with the genealogies found in the Old Testament, and it becomes apparent that Matthew has deliberately done something here with this genealogy. He has deliberately organized his genealogy with a very specific emphasis. And I say this because it is obvious that Matthew is not giving a comprehensive list of every single person that, are, that is in the Jesus family tree. You can just do this and compare it and go back to these genealogies that would have been the groundwork for Matthew to write what he wrote here, and you will begin to see that every single man who had a son, who had a son, who had a son in the Jesus family tree, they are not listed right now before us. So that tells us a clue that Matthew's doing something deliberate. He's laying a pattern before us so that we can see something true about Jesus as it relates to his family tree. So with this deliberate pattern, he is telling his audience, I want you to notice the significance in the number 14. Do you see how he says that in verse 17? He says, Abraham to David, 14. David to Babylon, 14. Babylon to Christ, 14. There's something going on with the 14 here. There's a pattern that he's putting in front of us. But the question is, well, what does it mean? Well, what in the world is going on with this number? It seems this is going on. It seems that Matthew has arranged his genealogy this particular way for a reason that goes all the way back to the Hebrew name for King David. In the Hebrew language... Listen, in the Hebrew language, the letters of the alphabet were often used for numbers so that each letter would have a numerical value. What? Remember Roman numerals. Remember how Roman numerals work? Exact same concept, yes. If I were to say write the number 16 as a Roman numeral, what would you write? The letter X, the letter V, and the letter I. Letters had numerical value. And for the Hebrews speaking, man or woman, this concept would be an overly familiar concept. It would be something that would be common to them in the way that they wrote and spoke. So in Hebrew, David's name is written using the consonants D, V, and D, which are the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and again, the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So when you add four plus six plus four, guess what? What do you get? You get the number 14. Now, we often attach numbers to people. If I were to say to you the number 23, most of you would think of which basketball player? Michael Jordan. If I were to say to you 007, who do we think of? James Bond. And the same would go for an Israelite who would recognize the number 14. This is King David's number. His name tells me I should think of 14. When I hear of 14, my mind should drift to King David. So when you go and read verse 17 now, the very, the very idea, the encapsulating idea at the end of the genealogy it's as if Matthew was saying, listen, all the generations from Abraham to David were David generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, David generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, David generations. In other words, says Matthew, when you think about Jesus' family tree, I want you to see that Jesus is the Davidest David who's ever Davided. That's what I want you to see right now. 
and like a diamond with many facets that reflects light. So if you go and you get a real nice diamond, perfectly crystal clear, no impurities in it at all, and it's been buffed and it's been honed and it's got all these facets cut into it, and you go and you stick that diamond into a shaft of the of the sunlight as it pierces through the window, what does it do? That light hits the diamond, it starts bouncing around in the diamond, and it begins reflect, reflecting all this prismatic light all over the wall as you hold this diamond up to the light. I want you to see that Matthew, I believe, is inviting us to treat this genealogy like that kind of diamond. We're meant to pick up the genealogy, the diamond genealogy, and see the reflecting light of God's long-promised kingdom no matter how you twist and turn the genealogy. What he's saying is it's David's son. It's David's son. It's David's heir. It's David's heir. It's David's royal king. It's David's royal king. It's David's Lord. It's David's Lord. You can't escape it. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. This genealogy tells us that from the beginning to end, God knew exactly where he was going. From Abraham to Jesus, he knew exactly where he was going. Throughout the centuries, down through all the years, God was directing history towards this particular moment where a man named Joseph and a woman named Mary would have a son whose name is Jesus. God was directing history towards this moment. The first Christmas where the hopes and fears of all the years truly did meet in that Bethlehem baby on that first Christmas night. Listen, friends, it is super, super, super easy to get lost in the boring monotony of life. Yes? Anyone ever just sort of wake up and almost want to yawn yourself back to bed because your life is just so monotonously boring? Anyone else ever been here before? Another day, another job, another bill, another diaper, another grocery run, Another conversation, another, 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 another. But what you need to know is this. While it is easy for us to get lost in the boring monotony of life, God is never lost. God is never lost. We are often confused by our circumstances, but God is never confused by the circumstances. We have doubts about his promises, but God knows what he is doing. His promises never fail. God may seem slow to us, but he is always moving his purposes at exactly the right speed. God is never late. God is always on time. God's timing is perfect. And the proof is that Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah, all the way down to Mary giving birth to a boy named Jesus, who is the Christ. Now lastly, we see this. We also see that in Jesus Christ, we have the hope of redeeming grace. The hope of redeeming grace. Look in verse 16. Look at how Matthew concludes the Jesus family tree. He says, Jacob was the father of Joseph. Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. If you were just to go back, and I encourage you to do this if you so care, if you go back and look among the mixture of names in Jesus' genealogy, we discover several names of people we would expect to find. If I were to say, survey time, 
Come up to the mic. Tell me, who would you expect to find in the Jesus family tree? Surely we would hear David, Abraham, Isaac, right? So the, the greats, right? The people that are the heroes, right? These, these kinds of names. But a striking feature of Jesus' family tree is that it is filled full of those we would never expect to find in the Jesus family tree. We find the wise mixed there among the foolish in someone like King Solomon. We noticed heroes of the faith, like I just said, in people like David and Abraham. But then the moment that we recognize that these men are heroes of the faith, then we also immediately remember that David was an adulterer. David was a murderer. And while Abraham, quote, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, he also struggled to rest in God's promises and trust in him. Hagar, Ishmael, remember that whole episode? We find a few kings who honored the Lord not only with their lips but with their life, but we also find many, many kings in this genealogy who were just outright evil who did not want anything to do with the Lord God. And perhaps most surprising of all, we find women mentioned in this genealogy. Traditionally, in Jewish genealogies, women were not listed. It's just the way it was. It was the lineage flowing through father to son, father to son, father to son. But if you notice, Matthew lists five women in this genealogy. Yet, in some way, all of these women have a very checkered past. Tamar gave birth to the twin sons of her father-in-law because she slept with her father-in-law, and he enticed her and went into her. Rahab, if you remember, was a Jericho prostitute. Ruth was a Moabite whose forefathers were permanently barred from the congregation of Israel. And Bathsheba, just simply referred to here as the wife of Uriah, was the object of David's adultery. And although Mary was free from sexual sin, she was wrongly accused of being unfaithful to Joseph. Sure, Mary, the baby in your belly came from the Holy Spirit. Right? That kind of wrong accusation. You have the rich. You have the poor. You have the downcast. You have those who know the blessing of God. Just notice that Jesus' lineage is filled with men 